This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst. Kevin is an expert in fire ecology and management. He joined me to talk all about bushfire science and bushfire behaviour, as well as the proposed Bushfire Royal Commission, what we did and didn't learn from previous inquiries and Royal Commissions, and how we proactively manage the land for the future. And uh, I have with me on the phone a very special guest. His name is Kevin Tolhurst. Kevin is an Associate Professor in Fire Ecology and Management, and uh, he's been working on a lot of research over the decades and been um, involved in bushfire management and giving advice as to bushfire behaviour and bushfire science uh, to governments. He's um, given evidence at a number of bushfire inquiries and royal commissions and um, he's also developed uh, software around bushfire behaviour as well. So I'm really glad that I get to speak now with Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst who joins me on the phone and we will be talking all about bushfires and also the proposed bushfire royal commission mission that the federal government has uh, requested and put out uh, a communique to the states in regards to. And uh, of course, this is all particularly topical given the uh, bushfires that we've been experiencing, not just in Victoria, but of course also in New South Wales and South Australia. There were also some uh, elsewhere in Australia, in Tasmania and Western Australia. So we've seen a lot of bushfire activity over the summer. And of course, the summer isn't yet over. So I welcome now Kevin Tolhurst. Hi there and thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning Amy and good morning listeners. It's great to to chat with you. I'm really um, interested to cover a broad range of topics within this um, idea of bushfire behaviour and bushfire management Um, but I thought we might start out with your background and your particular interest and your involvement in a number of activities relating to advising government and giving evidence to governments and uh, I think some people may be aware that you were playing a role in advising uh, people during the Black Saturday bushfires and you also gave evidence to the Bushfire Royal Commission which came out of the Black Saturday um, bushfires which of course killed uh, a number of people and um, um, destroyed many homes and also destroyed the environment in many ways. So in terms of your previous background in that uh, practical sense of utilising your own research and um, having it taken up through advice um, and practical action, what has been your I guess driving passion to be involved in this area and and what's your experience been in putting some of your um, insights into practice? <laughs> Look, I guess the, um, my main driving, driving force has always been to try and maintain the, um, our natural environment in a sustainable sort of a way. So, um, and a lot of that is to do with how we uh, look after the, the soils, how we look after the, um, the plants and the animals in that system. And fire is such a fundamental part of the process in how those systems operate that um, when I got a chance to uh, do some fire ecology research in uh, starting in 1984, I uh, couldn't um, stop 
moving into that area because it was an area that I thought was really important. So I guess the driver for me has always been to um, maintain the, our natural ecosystems in a, a sustainable way. So uh, not necessarily just locking them up, but uh, uh, maintaining the processes in there, given that uh, we've got humans in the landscape, we have needs and uses of the, of the environment. So it's uh, always been important to me to, to get the, the balance right between um, our human wants and needs and, and uh, the environmental wants and needs. Indeed. And I know that um, a lot of your research can be utilised in these kind of crisis situations as, of course, uh, many people who study this area. And um, looking at the bushfires that we've experienced over January, I think a lot of people have probably been shocked by the extent of some of these fires that kind of grew into mega fires and took some people by surprise. When you're looking at a bushfire and what drives not only the kind of ignition of one but how it grows and moves, what are some of the reasons why bushfires might occur in the landscape and um, what can turn them into a megafire like some of the fires we've seen over summer? So I guess there are, um, one of the fundamental things we need to understand is that fires are, are great integrators of energy and there are basically five sources of energy that uh, get incorporated into fire. So the one that most people are, are quite familiar with is the fuel. So the, And the fuel is largely the dead organic material. So organic material is basically stored chemical energy and in the combustion process that energy is released and we see that in terms of flame and heat and smoke coming out of uh, a fire. So the fuel is an obvious one. Then there's a second form of energy that goes into fire, that's captured by fire, is the weather. And again, that's not too surprising. So the stronger the wind, the more intense the fire. But the wind also helps direct the movement, the direction of movement of the fire. Um, but the dryness of the air also uh, comes into play there as well in terms of removing some of the moisture from uh, the fuel, which the fire itself would have to have done otherwise. So the weather, the fuel, they're the two uh, most obvious sources of energy. But the terrain also has a, a role to play because hot air rises. Uh, a steep slope means that the hot air rising is actually moving through the fuel more, so the preheating is much more efficient, so the rate of spread is a lot quicker. So where you have significant terrain, so uh, mountainous country, uh, you, more energy is available to the fire as well, and that adds to the spotting process as well as just the, the flame front movement. Then the other two ones are less perhaps obvious. One is the environmental moisture content, which is related to drought. So the precondition for the fires this year have been a period of at least four years of drought in New South Wales, in southeast Queensland and uh, eastern Victoria. And so what happens there is the moisture is uh, driven out of the, uh, the live vegetation as well as the dead uh, biomass, the fuels. And so it is easier for the fire to, to spread because it doesn't have to dry the fuel out. So drought is a, an important preconditioning, so it's a fourth source of energy. And the fifth source of energy is the instability of the atmosphere. So if a fire gets big enough, the, the smoke column from that fire basically uh, moves into the atmosphere and it's very much a three-dimensional process and the rate at which that smoke's uh, rising will increase if the atmosphere is unstable like conditions that lead to thunderstorm uh, type conditions or when a front moves through um, 
And what happens then is the winds at ground level actually increase to replace the air that's rising in the atmosphere. So we can get uh, cyclone strength winds at ground level that have been induced by the fire. So we've seen the fires over this last um, few months um, when they get large and under unstable atmospheric conditions where we have these low pressure troughs moving around um, the country uh, in a drought period, the fire is able to integrate or capture all of those sources of energy and we end up with this massive fire. So that's the, the physical behaviour. If the fires never got large, then they wouldn't be uh, able to integrate as much of that energy. So that's a major issue and the question is why did they get so large? And part of the reason for that is how we've managed the landscape and how we've responded in terms of uh, trying to suppress the fires. So uh, it's quite a complex integrated system that we're trying to deal with, but fires don't just happen. There's a lot of build-up to them. Yes, exactly. It sounds like it's almost a perfect storm of conditions that can lead to these mega fires that we see and um, that kind of cyclone behaviour that we um, saw and you've just mentioned where we saw some tragic circumstances where uh, there was flipping of fire trucks and some of the volunteer firefighters losing their lives when they got caught up in some of these really extreme um, windy and bushfire conditions. How often do do those kind of events where there is this kind of cyclonic activity and it's and a bushfire creating its own weather pattern in Australia's history. How often do we know that this kind of behaviour occurring? It certainly has happened before. I guess this year has been really unusual in the extent of the fires. So going basically all the way from southern Queensland uh, around to South Australia and even Western Australia have had um, some significant fires, although uh, probably more they've been more normal for summer conditions, but. Now, to have fires all the way from Queensland around to South Australia, uh, around the eastern, southeastern part of Australia, all occurring more or less at the same time is really, really unusual. So having large fires where we get these um, massive amount of energy uh, being captured and, and um, impacting on the site certainly has happened uh, several times before, but I guess the, the, the widespread nature of them is, is really unusual. And you also mentioned um, that there's a role in the kind of spread of bushfires in terms of spotting and how that can um, make things substantially worse. What were some of the instances we saw over summer where spotting uh, became an issue with these fires? Yeah, look, spotting uh, eucalypt forests so in Australia is unique in the sense that the amount of embers that are produced from fires in uh, eucalypt forest is not paralleled with with any other uh, vegetation type in the world. So uh, we have a really unusual amount of spotting. But what the spotting does is it creates lots of small um, fires ahead of the main fire front and it becomes basically a firestorm type situation where normally what happens if you've just got a single fire, the air that's being drawn into the fire is relatively cool. It still might be 40 degrees, but it's relatively cool compared with the the heat of the fire. But if you've got hundreds or thousands of spot fires uh, burning in the the ground uh, ahead of the fire, that's all generating heat and so the air that's being entrained into the main convection column is not just the the ambient air of say 40 degrees temperature but it'll be heated air from the the fire area and so that feeds back rapidly on the um, the main convection column and accelerates the fire and, and we get 
effectively firestorm conditions. So that's occurred on a number of occasions where we've had big runs of uh, fire. And so um, the fire spread at about two to three times as fast when the spotting process is uh, fully engaged compared with under milder conditions where the, the fire is just spreading under more local spread conditions of radiation and convection from the flaming front. So spotting is really important in terms of both the severity of the fire, but it also affects... One of the first things I was surprised at when I first studying, started studying fire was why do so many kangaroos get... Uh, killed in uh, bushfires and I thought because they can run faster than a fire can spread but when you consider this spotting process what happens is even the kangaroos will get trapped by being rapid, um, surrounded by fires in a short period of time and we, we saw that a lot on Black Saturday in places like uh, Narbathon and, and um, Strathewan and Marysville where large areas, so in a radius of about eight kilometres, were basically more or less uh, ignited in, within a few minutes and then the fires coalesced and created this firestorm uh, situation. And it's the same thing that traps the wildlife, the kangaroos. They, don't, they can't uh, move quick enough to get outside the area because they're actually surrounded by fire. So the spotting process is really um, important and the spotting is largely being driven by the bark on the um, the eucalypt trees, so um, whether it's the stringy bark or the uh, loose gum bark. It sounds like it makes things uh, particularly unpredictable. And I've heard you speak in the past about um, the use of bushfire analysis and analysts in these kind of fast-moving situations where they're often engaged to look at mapping areas and predicting where bushfires might occur and also if one is currently uh, burning where it might spread to uh, but there's also other ways that analysts can be utilised to hopefully be more strategic and to make sure that all the kind of proactive things that can be done are being done. What are some of those areas of knowledge that are maybe underutilised at the moment in terms of our practice with bushfires? Yeah. That's a very politically astute question, but uh, the problem is that um, the the behaviour of fires is pretty well known and we can predict it fairly well. So a lot of people say that it's uh, unpredictable or it's not true. I mean, fires still obey the, the rules of chemistry and physics and, and so it's just a matter of understanding the processes and what processes are operating at a time and fire behaviour analysts are trained to, to be able to understand that. And a, uh, a colleague and I produced a, um, a simulator, fire simulator called Phoenix Rapid Fire, which incorporates uh, a lot of those processes in a, in a computer um, model. So and fire behaviour analysts have access to that as well, so they can use that. So they can actually come up with pretty good predictions of where the fire is likely to be and what it's likely to be like. And that provides a good basis for making choices between different suppression strategies. But what we've seen, um, I guess, in the last few years, and this year has been uh, a fantastic example of it, and this is why I say it's a political, astute question that you asked, is that there's so much more emphasis just on reactionary response. So it's just a matter of sending resources out and, and uh, uh, doing as much as you can, being busy, uh, without necessarily being all that strategic in the thinking and the allocation of the resources. So we see these big 
aircraft that uh, drop fire retardant and, and the helicopters and so on, uh, and they all look fantastic, but strategically they're not necessarily playing uh, that great a role, but they look great on the 6 o'clock news. So politically and publicly there's a lot of support for the aircraft, whereas in fact the best work uh, in stopping a fire is usually done at ground level. And so, um, but as you understand, the amount of energy that's been released from a fire is always going to be far in excess of what we can deal with head on. So we have to be smarter about how we go about uh, trying to control fires and suppress fires. And that takes a lot of strategic planning and, and uh, thinking. So it's not just reacting to what's in front of you, what you can see. It actually requires careful thought and consideration. And that's where the fire behaviour analysts are really important because they're sitting back um, uh, away from the, the fire front, if you like, but able to see what's going on and do an analysis of uh, what's happening now and what's likely to be happening in the future and provide good guidance as to the best way to use the, the resources we have available, so whether it's aircraft or ground crews or whatever, to um, basically deal with the fire. And it might not be necessarily um, going in at the height of the fire, but waiting for an opportunity when the fires, uh, weather conditions have died down or the fires moved into an area that is more accessible uh, and what can be done. But part of the analyst's program, uh, um, job also is to say, how long have you got to achieve a certain amount of work? So it might be that you have four hours to achieve a particular uh, result or it might be you have four days to achieve that particular result and then it's the problem is can we find enough resources to be able to achieve the, the task in the time that's available. So that strategic thinking is quite critical and the trouble is because we've moved down a more political populist approach we're just uh, using reaction and, and uh, immediate response thinking rather than longer term strategic thinking so our use of our resources haven't been as effective as they uh, could possibly have been given all the circumstances that we're dealing with. Mm. And perhaps it has been um, more political this year given that there has been this look to political leaders for guidance and reassurance and um, there hasn't really been all that much reassurance over this summer um, and we have seen the aircraft that you mentioned there be one of those major kind of sticking points for people as that well why can't we just bring in the aircraft and and they'll solve the problem what would be the role then and how are water bombers and other um, kind of airplanes using fire retardant what role do they best play in a situation like we've seen over the summer holidays where can they provide um, the most useful support to ground crews? Yeah, so um, aircraft, uh, two of the most useful roles for aircraft, one is uh, just as an observation deck to be able to see what's happening at ground level and then communicating that to the people on the ground because when you're on the ground the extent of your vision can be quite limited by the, the terrain or the, the fire itself or whatever. So they're a really useful platform for guiding people on the ground. So uh, that's not <laughs> that's without dropping any water or, or retardant. The second thing that they're really useful for the aircraft is dealing with fires when they're relatively small or the early stages of development. And certainly in Victoria this year, there's been a much better use of aircraft early in the development of fires. So aircraft have been immediately deployed when a fire has been identified. And that's a much better use of aircraft than um, waiting for an hour 
to see what happens and then sending the aircraft out by, because by that time often the fires are too large for the aircraft to be effective. The large air tankers that we see, the trouble with them is really they, well, they, they can put out a lot of uh, material in um, a drop. Uh, they can't do many drops per hour. They, they, the turnaround time is uh, quite long and the fire moves faster than they can put out track. So there are opportunities to use them in some places to help perhaps backburning operations or to slow down the fire to um, allow ground crews time to, to achieve uh, a particular outcome on the ground. So they, they do certainly have a use, but they, they don't put fires out. Uh, they're only um, useful uh, supplementary resources to assist uh, what's happening on the ground. Uh, it's, it's, it's akin in a way to fighting wars that it's the ground crews in the end that sort of um, decide the final outcome even though that the aircraft can be uh, strategically quite important and useful So, but they're not the, the end in themselves so we've got to be careful that we don't spend so much of our time and resources on big aircraft when we might be better off uh, employing another 100 people and I think that's another part of this question is People who are working on the ground um, as firefighters, in a way, need to be very familiar with the country they're working in. And so I think there's a, a need to have a lot more um, people permanently working in the bush where these fires occur so that they understand the the, uh, the bush itself, the, the track network, the, the nature of the, the, the plants and the animals across the landscape so that they in a, an emergency situation can make much better decisions so it's not just a matter of trying to quell the flames they actually are, are more thoughtful and um, understanding of how the, the system is working and so that they can work more safely and more effectively so there's a, a major longer term land management issue here that needs to be addressed as well. Indeed, and if we're talking about this longer term picture and the allocation of resources to firefighting, a lot of people have raised that kind of concern that can we rely upon uh, volunteer firefighters to do the majority of the heavy lifting over summer and people have been concerned that maybe this is just the beginning and that we may see more intense bushfires uh, in future summers and of course there's still a bit more of the Victorian bushfire season to go. In your mind given that we've experienced some particularly difficult uh, situation or circumstances this summer, what kind of forward planning would need to be considered uh, for future ideas like what kind of level of ground crews might Australia need moving into the future to manage these bushfires? Yeah, look I think um, we shouldn't be expecting volunteers to be the bulk of our firefighting force. The volunteers are an incredibly valuable uh, resource and, and community asset in a sense but their focus should always be the protection of the, the community and a relatively short-term uh, response, in my view. So I think we should have enough paid um, fire management people in the, across our state to be able to, across our country, to be able to deal with these fires uh, on the longer term. But if we took a program that might take 20 years to fully implement and had more uh, paid people doing work in, in uh, forested areas who uh, were basically doing uh, prescribed burning and, and perhaps track maintenance work and, uh, and other work, but based in rural areas, not based in regional centres or, or large towns, but sort of based closer to the area that they're actually working. Um, 
and so that they're familiar with the, the local community as well as the, the local environment. And those people would be doing a lot of preparatory work well before a bushfire starts. And in that sort of environment, you would never get to the stage where you would have such extensive fires as we've seen in, in the last few years. So that the skills and the knowledge of people using uh, prescribed fire and managing uh, the landscape is different to the skills that you, you require for just firefighters. Firefighters are, um, have a, a much narrower and more specific sort of role to play, but we um, shouldn't see that the problem is a firefighting problem. The problem is a land management problem, and so people working in the in the environment need to actually understand that um, environment that they're working in. So when a wildfire does come along, they can more effectively um, and safely work in that environment and uh, reduce the, the chances of having such extensive fires in the first place. Mm. I'm speaking with Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst, who is an expert in fire ecology and management. And Kevin, I'm interested in some of the confusion perhaps that has arisen over summer and that you've just touched on around preparatory elements like hazard reduction burns. Uh, a lot of people were confused uh, during summer and were often using interchangeably the concepts of backburning and hazard reduction burns, which are very two very different things. Could you share with us what the essential differences are and why they are important? Yeah, okay. So a generic term, I guess, for the deliberate application of fire to achieve uh, specific outcomes is prescribed burning. So prescribed burning specifically relates to fire that's used to uh, achieve a particular outcome and it can be high intensity or low intensity or whatever. Back burning is specifically a uh, strategic use of fire during a wildfire to um, light a new fire uh, ahead of the main fire to basically burn out the fuels in front of the fire. But that new fire that you light has to be controllable. So again, it's a big decision to make to actually do a backburn. And so when people are talking about backburning, meaning prescribed burning for whether it's hazard reduction or whether it's an uh, environmental um, outcomes, um, it, it's a misuse of the term. So backburning basically means you're trying to get a fire to burn back into the wind, um, back towards the main fire front ahead of the fire. And it's a, it's a very tricky situation to get right and, and often we've seen this season as with the other seasons that many of these back burns actually uh, escape and can actually extend the extent of the fire if they're not um, done well. So yeah we should be talking about prescribed burning when we're talking about uh, specifically trying to achieve land management outcomes so whether that's the regeneration of plant or, or animal species or whether it's the, the cycling of uh, nutrients in the, uh, the landscape and it's that knowledge and skill that's associated with doing prescribed burning that is useful during wildfires but that use of fire to maintain the, the natural processes in the ecosystem will also as a byproduct reduce the hazard level because simply by having had fires in that landscape that certain amount of energy has already been released from that system under a milder conditions and a more gradual process so the damage done by fires is minimal. In fact, there's probably more good done than damage under those mild conditions. What we see under high-intensity fires, particularly extensive high-intensity fires, some of the damaging damage that's done by those fires can be irreversible. 
you know, it sort of really makes me really sad and depressed when I see areas that have been burnt so hot that the soils uh, erode away for years afterwards. And you think, well, it's never going to recover. It's taken tens of thousands of years for that soil to build up in the first place. And now after this one event, uh, the soil is now continuously eroding into our streams. So it's blocking um, a lot of our aquatic systems as well so it's interfering with the aquatic system as well as uh, back on the site where the soil's been lost where the seed and the nutrient has all all been lost and it'll never recover back to what it was before so the severity of these fires is partly a result of us not having enough prescribed fire low intensity fire in the landscape so because we've got so many people living in Australia these days and we've got various values and assets and there's been a lot of fragmentation and we've got pest plants and animals. Management of fire is, is quite difficult and complex and so we need to uh, have a lot of skill and knowledge to be able to apply it. Now there's been talk of learning from a lot of the traditional uses of fire from the, the, the uh, um, traditional owners and I think there's a lot that can be learned about what indicators are used, what methods are used we can't apply directly what might have been done before European settlement, but we can learn a lot from how they did it and why they did it and uh, learn from that and, and develop new systems for the, the future based on that traditional knowledge. There's a, a, there is an argument as well that some of the traditional owners should be allowed to uh, apply fire themselves in some locations just for cultural uh, purposes. But um, I think uh, we need to learn to live with the land more than trying to fight it and, and uh, overwhelm it and control it. We, we need to be working with the environment rather than trying to um, master it. Yes, and presumably conditions have, I guess, evolved and changed over time. Some people have highlighted the fact that climate change has um, accelerated, in some cases, drought, and drought um, has, of course, led to more severe bushfires. That's the kind of discussion we've been having over summer. And mm. so um, given that those conditions have changed and you know, been caused in large part by human activity and industrialisation, it as you say, is probably more about understanding um, the methods of traditional owners and then trying to see how they might apply to new circumstances in a, a climate change era that we're now facing. Yeah, and I think one of uh, my concerns is, I guess, climate change is being used as almost a cop-out. So saying, oh, well, you know, this is all part of climate change. And so all that climate change is actually doing is really exposing the weaknesses of our land management over the past few decades. And so we need to address climate change, but we also, and just as importantly or even more importantly, address how we're managing the natural environment. So a lot of us uh, with a, a sort of a more city-centric sort of view of the world think that more is better. So we think the more biomass on a site then that's going to be better. Well, it's not necessarily. I mean, it's like saying that um, someone who uh, weighs 120 kilograms is going to be healthier than someone who weighs 70 kilograms. More is not necessarily better. You, you've got to be fit and you've got to be vital and be responsible. So we need to keep the environment in a, 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 a vital and vibrant uh, state. And it's not just about having it all in as old as possible, as long undisturbed or uh, the greatest amount of biomass, that's not the most 
viable and sustainable way to maintain the systems. And we've seen uh, several examples of areas where there's been reserves set aside and, and fire has been kept out of those reserves for as long as possible. And eventually what happens is it all gets burnt in one fire really intensely and has uh, really drastic impacts rather than necessarily being a, a gradual um, involvement of fire over a long period of time where the, the, the impact is nowhere near as dramatic and in fact is, can be quite in, uh, even enhancing and sustaining. So we, we need to uh, move away from some of our um, human-centric sort of view of the environment and, and think about the environment from the environment's perspective. And again, that's where I, I see some of the understandings from the traditional owners being really useful because they see themselves as part of the environment not the, the owners or the managers of it. And so their perspective is much more from a um, keeping the environment, I guess, in a, a, a healthy and productive state. Mm. And uh, it's also interesting in terms of um, some of the kind of ways that you've described fire as being a natural process and that we need to, as you've already alluded to, um, stop kind of seeing it um, in this kind of fight-reaction approach but to see it more as an integrated part of the environment and how we um, manage that and make sure that it's controlled. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, we can look at the rain in the same sort of way. I mean, rain is vital for life, and we we uh, rely on rain a lot. But if we get too much rain, we call it floods, and that can mm. have a damaging process. So fire is no different to, to rain in that sense. The, the main difference about fire is that we can have a bigger influence on it by uh, either suppressing fires or, or starting fires, igniting fires. So there's more onus on us as humans to uh, manage fire across the landscape. We can't manage rain to the same extent. We can sort of affect drainage and we can affect how we design things. But um, the fire is one element of the environment that we have a lot of influence over and therefore we have a lot of re more responsibility to, to manage well. Mm. And I think um, it's interesting that when we have these really severe events and uh, there's a huge impact to humans as well as the environment that we'll often try and regroup and analyse what has gone wrong, which of course can be very productive. And I'm thinking about the number of public inquiries, reviews and royal commissions that we've had and which you have written about in a piece, you know, sharing the fact that there have been at least 57 formal public inquiries, reviews and royal commissions relating to bushfires and fire management since 1939. I mean, that is quite a staggering number um, of reviews and uh, you highlight that that is really more than one inquiry every two years over the past 80 years. I'm interested in your thoughts on the fact that we've had so many of these inquiries and you've given evidence at a number of them. What are some of the things that have come up time and time again in these inquiries that we possibly haven't really taken on board and implemented and learned from? Yeah, so, so I think... The things that we've probably taken up reasonably well is uh, how we communicate and, and let people know what's going on more, so we're using technology for that. But what we haven't really taken on very well is how we plan uh, our subdivisions and where we put houses, how we um, manage the, the landscape generally. One of the things that comes out of uh, a number of these inquiries is the requirement really to have 
well, bodies or, or people with responsibility to have a long-term view of how we're managing these landscapes. We're dealing with ecosystems that have a span of, in terms of hundreds of years, rather than necessarily three-year cycles of an election. So having uh, someone with responsibility to make the decisions, the strategic decisions that need to be made, that is at arm's length to uh, the, the political process uh, is really important. And there has been little appetite really to um, to look at that seriously. There's pl always plenty of resources and, and support for more emergency response, because that's fantastic on the six o'clock news, because you can get that on most evenings. But there's very little... Um, reward or, or uh, push really for good land management because if, if you're managing the land well uh, no one particularly notices <laughs> and and so there's very little reward and so politically you can say well you know what's the point of spending money on this it's, it's going alright we'll divert the money over here to another uh, higher priority area and uh, in the, as a consequence of that sort of uh, involvement, you then end up with a, a gradual degradation of uh, land management over a period of decades. And you get to a point that we are now where the, the land management is really poorly done in Australia generally. And so we really need to readdress that. And that's been a, a common theme from a number of inquiries. But politically, it's so hard to implement because it needs to be at arm's length to the political process so having sort of um, statutory authorities, really, that have responsibility for, for land management would be a much better way of going rather than having direct political direction and involvement. So the politicians need to stand back a bit and say, look, we, we'll set the, um, the broad policy settings and, and the broad stra um, strategies that will be there, but the, dis the, the, the longer-term strategies and, and decision-making need to be made by an authority or a body that has more independence and it lasts longer than just a political cycle. That's an excellent point and it reminds me of the fact that a lot of people have um, highlighted over summer when we saw bushfires connect over the New South Wales-Victoria border that fires don't you know, remain in one state and it doesn't fit in a neat kind of category and you often have to have this collaborative effort between fire services and governments and you highlight in your article the fact that really responsibility for land and fire management is segmented by state and territory governments and that this kind of coordination needs to perhaps be better managed uh, across governments. How would you foresee that happening and do you think it is in current need of review? Well, we, we already have a, um, a national policy that's been signed off by all the, the, the ministers from all the states and territories of Australia, so through COAG, the Council of Australian Governments, from 2012, and um, what needs to happen with that? So that's a, a fire management plan for Australia. There needs to be work done to determine what the, the measurable outcomes are for that. We've done something similar for uh, sustainable forest management at, on a global level. And so Australia actually reports, according to the Montreal um, criteria and indicators on sustainable uh, forest management on an uh, annual basis, but we don't do the same thing with fire. We need to basically have a set of measures uh, uh, which include the, the, uh, the outcomes that we, we have that um, 
are agreed to nationally that we're all working towards. At the moment, each state and territory really work towards their own goals and outcomes, and, and a lot of them are relatively uh, short-term and, and, and small in, in, in extent. And as soon as you get to the state border, they're, they're different, and it looks different, and, and it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense, as you say. So we need to, um, I guess, at a national level, sit down and basically implement this uh, national fire management plan that's already been written up that sets out the goals and it sets out the, um, I guess, a broad process as to how it's going to be achieved, what the principles are, but the detail needs to still be worked through so that we can come up with an agreed set of uh, measures that um, we're all going to work towards. So we still might have some of our own customised ways of achieving those goals, and that's fine. It's the outcomes that we're really interested in having a bit more consistency with. So I think we need to be a bit more serious about trying to implement this plan, which was put together over um, a few years after the... Um, a lot of it was probably after the 2009 fires, in fact. But uh, there's been no effort or resources put to it to, to push it any further. That's what I'd really like to see sort of come out of, I guess, this year, saying, well, look, you know, we've already got our, our roadmap. Let's um, put in a few details here and, and make it work. Mm. And I think you're highlighting there what can be a weakness in government is that you will put in a lot of resources into coming up with a very well-considered plan. And um, as you highlight, there are 14 national goals that have been identified and that are shared across the states. Um, but then if there isn't a way to achieve the goal and if it's not set out really clearly with measurable outcomes, then how do you know that you're even moving towards achieving those goals? Um, it, it's really, it sounds so straightforward <laughs> and, yeah. and it probably is, but um, as you say, you need to put in the resources to get people to figure out what are the steps needed to take to actually get to that final end point of those 14 national goals that have already been set. I'm interested in how that really um, feeds into your argument about a bushfire royal commission because that has been something that Scott Morrison has proposed to the states. Um, but presumably if we have this uh, coordinated national plan that's already been um, you know, allocated a number of resources in at least putting together that plan, would money of a, from a bushfire royal commission be better spent figuring out how to achieve the plan that we've already set out? Yeah, I certainly think so. One of the um, unintended outcomes of all of these inquiries and, and com commissions and so on is that um, the agencies that are responsible for um, dealing with these issues become, I guess, criticism shy in a sense. So what happens is they, they then spend a lot more time in documenting everything they do and, and uh, making sure the processes are, are followed and, and it becomes even more... Bureaucratic, so a lot of the time and effort is put into the bureaucratic process rather than the environmental outcomes that we want. And in the end, the reason why we have these agencies in place is, I would hope, to uh, make the management of our land and our environment more sustainable and, and uh, better managed than it is just to um, increase the re-election uh, chances of the, the, the minister or the, the political party that's uh, in power at the time. I mean, we, we need to... if With these inquiries, uh, they basically feed on themselves so that the, um, the amount of effort and resources that goes into holding them in the first place 
and then the accountancy sort of process that ends up afterwards is a real distortion of the, the priorities that we should be setting for good management of fire and the land rather than necessarily uh, having political imperatives. Indeed, and just to close out our discussion, there was one recommendation that came out of the Black Saturday Bushfire Royal Commission, among many, of course. Uh, One of those was around land planning and where people are able to build and have houses, residential homes. Mm. And one of the suggestions had been a non-compulsory buyback scheme where people who currently own land and or properties in areas that are very much prone to bushfire might be able to have their properties bought by the state government. But it seems like those kind of plans, which, I mean, that's almost uh, reactionary in a way, and perhaps our planning should have already foreseen that maybe that spot wasn't a great spot to put a house. But where did we go in terms of this idea of planning and non-compulsory buybacks um, at the state level in Victoria? Yeah, I think if you actually look at the the discussion around that buyback scheme that was proposed by the the Royal Commission, what you'll see there is an acknowledgement that our planning processes haven't been as good as they needed to have been in the past. So it was a recognition of sort of some past poor decisions being made and this was, was a way of rectifying it. And I guess the other acknowledgement in a way is by having people and, and houses in locations that are in very difficult defendants on, uses up a lot of resources that could be better used elsewhere. So in the process of trying to defend one house or one property, those same resources could have been more effective in saving 10 or 20 properties in a more a better located area. So it, it, it is of community public interest, I guess, as to how this planning process works. So... The non-compulsory buyback, um, uh, the way uh, that it could work and has worked before, is you could basically just identify some properties which really should never have been allowed to be developed uh, in the first place. And the acknowledgement of that comes by way of a guarantee that the the government will buy the the property back if you uh, want to to sell it now and the the dwelling or buildings would be removed and it would become part of the Crown land. But in addition to that, whilst it's non-compulsory, you could also have a caveat on the property that it can never be unsold to anyone else so that it might be 20 or 30 years before the, the owner wants to move on or move out. At that time the property would be bought back then. So it wouldn't be, uh, it's, whilst it's been identified as being an unacceptable risk, you wouldn't necessarily force people off the, the property, but you would uh, say if the property gets burnt down, you're not going to be able to rebuild. Or if you move on, uh, you won't be able to on-sell it. You'll have to sell it to the government and it'll be, uh, the government will pay you a fair market rate for the, for the property. So I think it can work and it has worked before. There was a scheme not dissimilar to that implemented up in the, the Dandenong Ranges after the fires in the 1960s up there. But rather than keep making the same mistake over and over again, this is a way of trying to say, well, look, we, we acknowledge that some poor decisions have been made, so let's try and correct that because uh, effectively it's using up more resources, public resources, than uh, is reasonable and it's putting people at unreasonable level of risk. So let's acknowledge that and, and uh, do something about it.
Mm. Kevin, it's been so wonderful to speak with you. Unfortunately, we ran out of time and I really appreciate the time you've spent with us, really, I think, informing us much better about uh, bushfire behaviour and also how we can proactively manage the land and also make sure that it's based in evidence and has nuance and isn't reactionary, which, of course, can be the danger when we get caught up in really extreme bushfire situations like we've seen over summer. So uh, thank you so much for all the work you do and for spending time with us today. Thanks for giving me the time to uh, explain some of the detail. I've been speaking with the wonderful Associate Professor Kevin Tolhurst, who is a fire ecologist and um, also a bushfire scientist. He looks into bushfire ecology and management and is based at the University of Melbourne and has been working in this field for decades, as I'm sure was very evident in our discussion just there. And uh, if you want to look at uh, Kevin's work, it's, of course, online. And uh, he wrote an article recently for The Conversation which is called We Have Already Had Countless Bushfire Inquiries What Good Will It Do to Have Another? I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.